0: Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Ayca Chukucu, and on behalf of the Department of Sociology and the Center for the Study of Human Rights, I'm delighted to welcome you to the LSE and introduce our speaker, Professor Partho Chatterjee. Uh, Professor Chatterjee's lecture this evening inaugurates the internationalism, cosmopolitanism, and the politics of solidarity research network at the LSE and beyond and uh, it has been composed with the goal of contributing to the formation of its research agenda. Uh, before we proceed, allow me to announce that this event is being audio recorded and technology permitting. We hope to have a podcast of the lecture and the Q&A posted online next week. Uh, The event will finish at 8 p.m. and will be followed by a reception to which all audience members are invited. So um, as one of the most groundbreaking intellectuals of late 20th and early 21st century, to use a historical language, uh, (laughs) Professor Chatterjee will need no introduction for most of you. Still allow me to note that he's a professor of anthropology and of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African studies at Columbia University, and a professor of political science at the Center for Studies in Social Sciences in Calcutta. Uh, Professor Chatterjee is the author of too many books to count in a single breath. (laughs) I'll begin with the most recent, The Black Hole of Empire, History of a Global Practice of Power, which was published in 2012, Lineages of Political Society, uh, Studies in Postcolonial Democracy, which was published in 2011, Empire and Nation, which was published in 2010, and the politics of the governed considerations on political society in most of the world, which was published in 2004. Professor Chatterjee's lecture this evening is titled Nationalism, Internationalism, and Cosmopolitanism, Some Lessons from Modern Indian History. It is a tremendous pleasure and honor indeed to welcome to LSE Professor Partha Chatterjee an exemplary scholar, poet, playwright and mentor. Partho?
1: Well, thank you very much, HL uh, for your extremely generous uh, introduction uh, and it's really a pleasure to come back here to the LSE after uh, probably four or five years uh, and it was uh, at Aicha's invitation that uh, I have written up uh, what I'm going to say today uh, on a topic that I've thought about off and on for many years now, uh, but actually it's this occasion that's prompted me to put down a lot of this thinking uh, into connected, concise prose. So uh, this is entirely now up to you to judge uh, what uh, the, my argument and the position it articulates, what it implies in terms of the ongoing debates on this topic, particularly on the question of uh, internationalism and cosmopolitanism. Um, let me begin. I've, I've uh, wanted to do this in relation to my understanding of modern Indian history as a particular case where all of these three things uh, have come together in, in, in a very specific way, and I want to focus on that particular conjuncture in order to reflect more broadly on the question of uh, the, the linkage between nationalism, internationalism and cosmopolitanism today. Uh, but I want to go to a period before the 20th century uh, in order to begin this understanding, this historical understanding of the question. Let me state as my first proposition that the problem of nationalism, internationalism, and cosmopolitanism as an interconnected set of ideas, concepts, processes, or movements can only be posed in the case of modern Indian history from the beginning of the 20th century. Arguments could be made regarding the emergence or presence of one or another of those three ideas separately without their combination as a triad in earlier periods, but as ideas or movements that defined themselves in their specific connections with the other two entities in the triad, they appeared on the stage of history only in the 20th century. Thus, in their wars to resist conquest by the British in the 18th century, Indian rulers sometimes used the rivalries between the British, the French, the Dutch, and the Portuguese. The most daring such attempt was by the Mysore ruler Tipu Sultan, who in 1787 sent an embassy to the Ottoman Emperor Abdul Hamid seeking his support against the British? Acting much like an absolute monarch of Europe and following mercantilist trade and fiscal policies, Tipu also sent a mission to Louis XVI of France asking for 10,000 French troops to fight the English in India. Even more remarkably, after the revolution in France, He proposed in 1787 to the directory of the revolutionary government that there be friendship between, as he said, between the Khudadad Sarkar, the government given by God, and the nation of the Sarkar, and the French nation, and that 10,000 French soldiers and 30,000 Habshi, or Negro, soldiers, along with ships of war, be sent to India. I'm quoting from Tipu's letter to the directory. Happy moment. The time has come when I can deposit in the bosom of my friends the hatred which I bear against these oppressors of the human race, meaning the English, of course. If you will assist me in a short time, not an Englishman shall remain in India. You have the power and the means of effecting it by your free Negroes, with these new citizens much dreaded by the English Joined by your troops of the line, we will purge India of these cursed villains. Generals representing the directory corresponded with citoyen, Sultan Tipu, promising friendship but no specific military assistance. Napoleon Bonaparte wrote to our greatest friend Tipu Sahib from Cairo, this is from Napoleon's letter. You have already been informed of my arrival on the borders of the Red Sea with an innumerable and invincible army, full of the desire of delivering you from the iron yoke of England. I eagerly embrace this opportunity of testifying to you the desire I have of being informed by you by the way of Muscat and Mocha as to your political situation. I would even wish you could send some intelligent person to Suez or Cairo possessing your confidence, with whom I may confer. This letter never reached Tipu because it was intercepted by British agents in Jeddah. Most historians agree that there was little serious intention among the French generals of the time to launch a campaign across the Indian Ocean. But for Richard Wellesley, Governor General of India, the intercepted letters came as a godsend. He had already drawn up his plans for invading Tipu's territories... Now he had his reason. Emphasizing the alarming possibility that Napoleon's forces in Egypt might proceed towards India and join up with their ally in Mysore, Wellesley stormed Tipu's capital at Srirangapatna in 1799. Fighting alongside his troops, Tipu was killed in the battle. But even though Tipu may have used the word "com" or nation to describe Mysore and France... This was in no sense equivalent to our modern understanding of nations, nor can the idea of possible collaboration between the rulers of those two calm be described as internationalism. The difference will become clearer when I discuss the historical conditions that made the triadic combination thinkable. The Great Indian Revolt of 1857 brought together an alliance across large swathes of northern India of chiefs, landlords, farmers, soldiers, and preachers who rose in arms against the British. They chose the derelict Mughal emperor as the figurehead of the rebel forces. But despite the significant popular element in the revolt and its characterization by Karl Marx, repeated by the Hindu nationalist historian V.D. Savarkar, as the first war of Indian independence, it was not shaped by any sentiments we can properly recognize as nationalism. The political forms of modern nationalism appeared only in the 1880s with the emergence of political associations of the new liberal Indian elite. These took the collective form of the Indian National Congress. But this nationalism was not coupled with any form of internationalism until the turn of the century. Let me now move to that story. Nationalist armed struggle. The liberal nationalists of the Congress, known to historians as the moderates, made few demands beyond greater inclusion of Indian elites in the colonial government. What they imagined was some sort of citizenship within the British Empire. The decisive break came in the early years of the 20th century with a new group of nationalist agitators called the extremists, led by figures like Bal Gangadhar Tilak in Bombay and Aurobindo Ghosh and Bipin Chandrapal in Bengal, They mobilized a new political constituency among the middle classes and demanded independence from British rule, i.e. full national sovereignty. As Aurobindo wrote in an editorial, the new movement is not primarily a movement against bad government. It is a protest against the continuance of British control. Whether that control is used well or ill, justly or unjustly, is a minor and inessential consideration. It is not born of a disappointed expectation of admission to British citizenship. It is born of a conviction that the time has come when India can, should and will become a great free and united nation. Its true description is not extremism but democratic nationalism. The new nationalists thus rejected the fundamental justification of empire that it provided better government than erstwhile Indian rulers had done. As Aurobindo put it, imperialism had to justify itself to the modern sentiment against despotism of any kind and could only do so by pretending to be a trustee of liberty commissioned from on high to civilize the uncivilized and train the untrained until the time had come when the benevolent conqueror had done his work and could unselfishly retire. To unmask those pretensions of modern imperialism, the colonized people of India must rise in revolt. Democratic nationalism was incompatible with empire. What is interesting is that the new, more militant nationalism also invoked an internationalism. That was the opposite of the internationalism of empire. The radical nationalists of India began to look outward for examples of anti-colonial movements in other parts of the world. This was partly enabled by the spread of colonial education in English that produced a new bilingual middle class. Some of these college-educated young men and women travelled to European capitals for further education and saw at first hand the institutions of metropolitan society. They also made contacts with radical political groups operating in Europe. Madame Kama became a key figure in Paris, acting as the contact between Indian revolutionaries and socialist groups in Europe. Shyamji Krishna Varma's house in Highgate, London, became a center of radical Indian students in the first decade of the 20th century. Lala Hardayal moved to the United States to become the inspiration behind the Ghadar movement among immigrants from the Punjab in British Columbia, Washington, and California. Haim Kanungo learned the art of making bombs from anarchists in Paris to return to India and join the Jugantar group of revolutionaries in Bengal. Even more revealing of the internationalist imagination of the militant nationalists was the content of their propaganda literature. In the brief period of its publication in 1906-7, Before it was banned, the Bengali Weekly Jugantor wrote extensively about the history of revolutionary struggles in Europe, the Americas and Asia as well as the specific strategies and tactics of modern warfare, including guerrilla warfare. In particular, three examples from recent history were repeatedly explored. The unification of Italy as an example of nationalist armed struggle against imperial rule the continuing anti-colonial struggles in Ireland, and the military successes of Japan against Russia. Indeed, once the political goal was declared as complete independence, it was their knowledge of world history that told the nationalist revolutionaries that such a goal had never been achieved without armed conflict. Hence, in looking for political support outside British India, the militant nationalists sought out sources of arms as well as refuge from the British police. These efforts were intensified during the First World War when several efforts were made, all ultimately unsuccessful, to smuggle German arms into India to launch an insurrection. The official response of the British colonial authorities too recognized the international dimension of the nationalist movement. Indian students in Britain were put under close surveillance. The secret police files now available in the archives show that virtually every gathering, every speech, and every tiny publication in the overseas Indian community found its way into the intelligence reports. The file for the year 1910, for instance, has detailed history sheets on 37 Indians in London. Apart from detailed reports on open and closed-door meetings, speeches, debates, disagreements, etc., including their meetings with Egyptians, Persians, and socialists from France, the reports show that politically active Indians in Britain were followed everywhere and every contact with others, including their liaisons with women friends, was reported. To take the case of V.D. Savarkar, described in the intelligence reports as the ablest of the Indian revolutionaries in Europe, his history sheet records that he went on a holiday to Brighton, where he... was reported to have passed the greater part of his time on the pier reading. (laughs) On his return to London, he, quote, caught a chill and was confined to bed suffering from pneumonia and was visited by, and then a list of names follow. Not only that, the British pursued those they thought were particularly troublesome or dangerous into Canada, the United States, and Europe and often secured the cooperation of the local authorities to expel or arrest them. Savarkar, against whom an arrest warrant had been issued in Nashik in India, was arrested in London in 1910 on his return from Paris and put on a ship for deportation to India. When Savarkar jumped ship in Marseille, he was arrested by the French police, handed back to the British authorities who took him to Bombay, put him on trial and sentenced him to imprisonment in the Andaman Islands. Savarkar would later write a tract called Hindutva, that would turn him into the prophet of right-wing Hindu nationalism. Hardal was arrested in the United States in 1914 for anarchist propaganda and Norendra Bhattacharjee was harassed so much in the US that in 1917 he fled to Mexico to ultimately become famous in the international communist movement as M.N. Roy. Nevertheless, what is significant about these international connections was the centrality of the nationalist cause. Radical nationalists of the time became aware and made productive use of allied political movements in other countries of the world, primarily to further their anti-colonial nationalist struggle. M. N. Roy had come to the United States in 1916. He said later, quote, as an emissary of revolutionary nationalism, actually in alliance with Germany in the fight against British imperialism. Walking in the footsteps of the future Netaji, that is Shubhas Chandra Bose, nearly a quarter of a century ahead of time, I was on the way to Germany. When Roy met Hardayal in Berlin in 1920, the latter had become, according to Roy, an anarchist, but anti- in, anti-British nationalism was still his dominant passion. Needless to say, when Subhas Bose escaped from house arrest in 1941 to land up in Berlin, And on being rebuffed by Hitler, went to Singapore to raise an Indian national army with Japanese military assistance, he was being an internationalist with national liberation as his ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. The guiding influence of anti colonial nationalism at this time is made clear by a powerful movement in India that was initially driven by the religious solidarity of pan Islamic community, but was subsequently incorporated into a new movement of mass anti-colonial nationalism. The Khilafat movement began in 1919 as a protest against British attempts to dismember the Ottoman Empire and devalue the position of the Sultan as the religious head of Sunni Islam. Inspired by religious leaders, a group of some 18,000 muhajids left India, a country ruled by the enemies of Islam, to join the forces defending the caliphate but the broader movement in india led by political leaders such as Muhammad ali shaukat ali and abul kalam azad while protesting the partitioning of ottoman territories by the british turned itself into turned itself into an anti-colonial nationalist movement by aligning with gandhi's non-cooperation movement in 1920 The Muhajis ultimately ended up in camps in Tashkent, which had had just come under the control of the Red Army, and subsequently returned to India, a few in fact becoming the early leaders of the Communist Party of India. In Turkey itself, the movement led by Mustafa Kemal abandoned what it regarded as the historically obsolete ideas of empire and caliphate and turned the country into a modern nation-state the normalization of the (laughs) nation-state. These were the years following the First World War when a crucial restructuring took place. In the international order. A wide spectrum of opinion now came to accept the nation state as the universally normal and legitimate form of the modern state. This was indicated by the espousal of the right of self determination of nations by two leaders holding entirely opposed ideological views on most things. Both Woodrow Wilson and V.I. Lenin argued from their own political forums that this was a right that legitimately belonged to all peoples that had formed themselves as nations. Wilson, of course, was thinking of the nationalities that had been part of the Austrian and Ottoman empires and believed that the so-called backward peoples of Asian and African countries still needed to go through a period of tutelage under Western supervision. But he played a leading role in incorporating these ideas into the structure of the League of Nations. There are two dimensions along which the nation state came to be normalized in the era of the League one was that of sovereignty there was a general presumption that the locus of sovereignty everywhere in the modern world was the nation state as the members of the league were country, among the members of the league were countries such as albania bulgaria czechoslovakia and hungary which were until recently parts of the Ottoman and Austrian empires, and Ireland, which was a British colony until the Irish Free State was created in 1922. There were League members such as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, which were within the British dominions, and India, which was still a British colony. Thus, despite the fact that their sovereign status was ambiguous, they qualified as members because they were seen to be actual or potential nation-states. Most interesting was the status of the so-called mandated territories. These were the Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire and the former former colonial possessions surrendered by Germany. These territories were mandated to individual member states under the supervision of a permanent mandates commission in order to facilitate their transition to self-governing states. Article 22 of the League Covenant noted that these territories were, quote, inhabited by peoples not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world and declared that the tutelage of such peoples should be entrusted to advanced nations who by reason of their resources, their experience or their geographical position can best undertake these responsibilities as mandatories on behalf of the League. It was the old liberal colonial project now brought under the management of an international organization and hence subjected to a single juridical order that classified different types of mandates according to degrees of social development. Who had sovereignty over the mandated territories? Not the mandatory powers because they were only given the task of administering the territories. Rather... Sovereignty was, as it were, held in abeyance until such time that the people of the territory acquired the capability to govern themselves. Until then, sovereignty remained latent in the potential nation-state. The goal of independent national sovereignty was explicitly declared for the so-called A-mandates, i.e. the British mandates of Palestine and Mesopotamia, which in fact became the independent Republic of Iraq in 1932, and the French mandate of Syria, including Lebanon, while self-government was left ambiguous for the B and C mandates, that is, the former German colonies of Africa and the Pacific, because the mandatory powers, namely South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand, which wanted to annex those territories, refused to accept ultimate independence as the objective of their mandates. What the mandatory powers were asked to do was nothing less than create the conditions of sovereignty, that would turn the mandated territories into normal nation states. Not only that, by grading the mandates into A, B, and C types, according to the level of social development, the League suggested, as Anthony Angie has pointed out, quote, that sovereignty existed in something like a linear continuum and and that every society could be placed at some point in the continuum based on its approximation to the ideal of the European nation-state. The mandate system acquired the form of a fantastic universalizing apparatus that when applied to any mandated territory would be directed to the same ideal of self-government and in some cases transformed sufficiently to ensure the emergence of a sovereign state. Besides sovereignty, the other dimension along which the national form of the state was normalized was that of governmental practices. Here the Permanent Mandates Commission tried to initiate a major effort to devise by using comparative empirical methods a general administrative science that could help in framing suitable government policies according to the level of social and economic development of a people. The classification of mandates acknowledged the qualitative difference between the social formations of Mesopotamia, Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine, governed for centuries within a sophisticated bureaucratic empire, and the predominantly tribal African societies of Cameroon, Togoland, Rwanda, Urundi, and Tanganyika, and even more so, the so-called primitive societies of New Guinea or Samoa. But by organizing the production of massive sets of standardized information, on the the economic and social institutions of the mandated populations, the League brought them within a single comprehensive conceptual scheme in which they could all be described comparatively as having different degrees of stateness. Indeed, the production and classification of information and the devising of manuals of administration for the mandated territories suggests the image of a great Benthamite legislative factory devising the best possible laws for the peoples of the world, according to the particular abilities and needs of each, but all tending towards the same universally desirable norm. The standardization of governmental procedures across the world was also greatly accelerated in the League era by the new international organizations it created, namely the International Labour Organization, the Health Organization, and the Commission for Refugees. With varying degrees of effectiveness, these bodies tried to put in place governmental technologies of caring for the basic needs of safety, health, and habitation of populations in all member countries and making it the normal responsibility of modern states. By doing this, it inaugurated a major process of international supervision of standard governmental practices across the world, something that would become a feature of biopolitical practices in the late 20th centuries. In addition, by creating the Permanent Court of International Justice, the League also introduced the first institutional step in erecting a judicial framework for the legal monitoring of the activities of sovereign nation-states. Much has been said of the ineffectiveness and indeed the failure of most of these efforts of the League of Nations. But it is important to grasp the significance of the changes that were brought about by the League system in the very structure of the international order. Until the First World War, the international system effectively meant only the major powers of Europe and, by extension, the European settler colonies of the Americas. Only those countries were members of the so-called family of nations, both in diplomacy as well as in international law. This changed with the League system. Although the colonial possessions of Britain, France, Holland, Belgium and Portugal remained intact, the space of the international order was significantly expanded to include the nations formerly within the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires and declared as potential nation states those that were still colonies. Further, despite the shortcomings in realizing their goals, The normative strength of the technical practices introduced by the League was shown by the fact that most of them were taken up once more after the Second World War under the rubric of the United Nations. This time, the formal end of colonial rule and the actual universalization of the nation-state form were near at hand. The anti-imperial struggles had by then scored major victories in many parts of the colonial world, a new world order grounded on the universal principle of non-interference in national sovereignty was about to be founded. Let me move to another aspect of the history of this period, the early 20th century, communist internationalism. In the meantime, alongside the internationalism of the League, A parallel process was underway to create an international organization of revolutionary movements around the world. Following the Bolshevik Revolution, the Communist International was founded in 1919 to usher in a new internationalism guided by an imagination quite different from the liberal gradualism of Woodrow Wilson. The Third International succeeded two earlier attempts to build... The structure of revolutionary internationalism. But the International Workingmen's Association, which lasted from 1864 to 76 and included such leading revolutionary figures at the time as Karl Marx and Mikhail Bakunin, was entirely European in its composition, with only an occasional delegate from the United States. The Socialist International, 1889 to 1916, too, was predominantly European with only a small representation from the United States, Argentina, and Uruguay. With the Communist International, however, a distinctly new feature was added to revolutionary internationalism. This was the debate over what was called the national and colonial question. It is well known that for several years before the October Revolution, Lenin had tried to bring to the attention of European and Russian revolutionaries the importance of the colonial question in the East in relation to the prospects of revolution in the West. These ideas were brought together in his draft thesis on the national and colonial question presented to the second Congress of the Comintern in 1920. Lenin made three central arguments. First, the imperialist countries of the West had reached a stage of capitalism where the bourgeois democratic revolution was over and the socialist revolution led by the working class was on the agenda. In the colonies and semi-colonies of the East, however, capitalism was underdeveloped and the bourgeois democratic revolution was still awaited. Hence, Lenin argued that the political duty of the parties of the working class in European countries was to fight against the nationalism preached by their bourgeois governments. Lenin in 1920 made the following amusing remark. I'm quoting from Lenin. When an English workers' delegation visited me and I told them that every decent English worker should desire the defeat of the English government, they understood nothing. (laughs) They made faces that even the best photograph could not capture. They simply could not get into their heads the truth that in the interests of the world revolution, workers must wish the defeat of their government. But Lenin's second argument was in relation to the oppressed countries of the East. He said that when the bourgeoisie of the oppressed nations fight against their oppressors, the workers must support it. But when the bourgeoisie stands only for its own bourgeois nationalism, the workers must stand against it. Third, he made a more specific but significant observation in relation to China that could be extended to other agrarian countries of Asia. Lenin argued for a revolutionary democracy in colonial and semi-colonial countries where the peasantry, not the working class, will be the main revolutionary force, but which would avoid any Narodnik utopia of self-subsistent petty producers. This last remark was aimed at Sanyat senators program of agrarian reform. Lenin's thesis opened the field for debates that had major implications for the understanding of internationalism in the 20th century. The second Congress of the Communist International in 1920 is largely remembered for the debate on the colonial question between Lenin and M. N. Roy. Roy differed with Lenin on two central issues. Roy believed that because of a change in British policy after the First World War, industrialization was proceeding rapidly in India and the proletariat was fast expanding. Hence, the Communist Party, instead of supporting the bourgeoisie, should build independent political organizations of the working class. Second, Roy took Lenin's argument about the responsibility of the European working class to fight the, European, to fight the imperialism of their own ruling classes one step further to claim that the revolution in the West dependent on the revolution in the colonies. He said quite dramatically, quote, the destiny of world communism depends upon the victory of communism in the East. As it happened, the sharp differences between Lenin and Roy were toned down, and at Lenin's insistence Roy's modified draft was also accepted by the Congress as supplementary theses to Lenin's theses on the national and colonial question. But the debate's continued in the Comintern for several years. Roy added a further nuance to his argument by suggesting that the Second Congress has, had erred in lumping together all colonies and semi-colonies and prescribing the same revolutionary strategy for all of them. In his thesis on the Eastern question at the Fourth Congress in 1922, he argued that there had occurred a differentiation among the colonies and not all were at the same stage of social development. He distinguished between three groups. First, those such as China, India, Egypt, and Turkey that were nearing highly developed capitalism and hence had both a class-conscious bourgeoisie as well as a class-conscious proletariat. Second, countries where feudalism was dominant and capitalism was weak. And third, countries where... As he put it, primitive conditions still prevail. He argued that different revolutionary strategies had to be adopted for each of those groups of colonies and semi-colonies. This argument continued to be influential in the Comintern for the next few years. It is interesting that just as the League of Nations, while accepting the normative standard of sovereignty residing in the people nation, made gradations between the colonies, in terms of the level of, levels of social development in deciding the strategy of granting self government, so did the Communist International make the same gradations in deciding the strategy of revolutionary change. We need not spend more time here detailing the twists and turns in the Comintern position on the national and colonial question. To cut a long story short, we could say that from 1926. The debates within the Comintern became deeply entangled in the power struggles within the Soviet Union, first between Stalin and Trotsky, and then between Stalin and Bukharin. By 1930, the Comintern as as an organization was was reduced primarily into an arm of Soviet foreign policy. But on the basis of studies by scholars working on the recently opened Comintern archives, we can make the following observations relevant to our present discussion. First, by distinguishing between oppressor and oppressed nations, Lenin inaugurated a distinction between two different domains of internationalism. There was, on the one hand, the internationalism of the working classes of the advanced capitalist countries of the West, for whom the principled position was to oppose imperialism as well as the nationalism of their bourgeois ruling classes. On the other There was the internationalism in relation to colonial and semi-colonial countries in which the working classes must support the anti-imperialist struggles of the colonial bourgeoisie while standing for a revolutionary democracy in which the colonized peasantry will play the leading role. Three different revolutionary strategies emerged out of these debates. First, there was what was called the right-wing position which regarded anti-colonial struggles as a homogeneous concept with bourgeois nationalism as its defining characteristic. It advocated the establishment of links between the Comintern and nationalist struggles in the colonies. Second, there was the left-wing line, arguing for an offensive strategy by which the Comintern would actively encourage, train, and sponsor revolutionary groups in the colonies, give them material and financial support, and assist them in seizing the leadership of the anti-colonial struggle from the colonial bourgeoisie. Despite Lenin's explicit warnings against such adventurous attempts to export revolution, as in his left-wing communism and infantile disorder, the offensive strategy was highly influential in the Comintern during its entire life and became marked in the period from 1928 to 35, the so-called third period, when on Stalin's directive, the Comintern began to equate social democrats in Europe with fascism and push the communist parties in Asia into frontal opposition with the nationalist movements. The third strategy, which may be called Leninist, was somewhere in between the right-wing and left-wing positions. But while the debates over strategy continued within the Comintern throughout its lifetime, certain historical trends in communist internationalism emerged quite clearly. First, there was a universalization of the Bolshevik model of the party and the insurrectionary method of seizure of power. Comintern control over revolutionary internationalism meant that other forms of organization or strategy, were neither properly understood nor encouraged. Second, following from this, there was a strong centralization of the international movement directed from Moscow. In 1924, it was decided that there could be only one communist party affiliated to the Comintern in each country, and that party would be modeled on the organization of the Soviet Party the Comintern was empowered to send delegates to supervise the execution of its directives by the national sections. Individual parties were to send all decisions and accounts to the Comintern for approval, and no members were to be included in the central committees of those parties without Comintern permission. Third, even though the importance of the revolution in the colonies came to be recognized, and the eastern departments of the Comintern was was substantially strengthened after 1922. A curious division of labor emerged, in which the revolutionary movements in countries like China, Iran, Turkey, etc., that were in the immediate vicinity of the Soviet Union, were supervised directly from Moscow, while India was put under the charge of the Communist Party of Great Britain, and the colonies of West Africa and Southeast Asia became the business of the French Communist Party. Even then, Roy complained in 1922 that, quote, the British proletariat as a class is permeated thoroughly by the conscious or subconscious spirit of imperialism. Echoing him, Ho Chi Minh asked, quote, what have our communist parties in England, Holland, Belgium, and other countries accomplished which possess colonies? All that our parties have done in this regard is more or less zero. I, as as one who is a native of a French colony and member of the French Communist Party, find it very much regrettable to tell you that our party in France has done very, very little for the colonies. Nonetheless, as far as the Indian Party was concerned, the British authorities took the Comintern connection very seriously indeed. It managed to intercept most of the communication from Moscow and produce them in court in the first trials of communists in Kanpur in 1924 and Meerut in 1928 as evidence of an international conspiracy to overthrow the government. The conclusion then is inescapable that communist internationalism, while open up, opening up an entirely new dimension through its consideration of the colonial question as a distinct domain, different from the internationalism among Western countries, ended up as dominated by the foreign policy interests of the Soviet Union. This became even more marked in the era of the Cold War. The internationalism of the non-aligned. The years after the Second World War are well known for the emergence of two rival international blocs led by two new superpowers. The Western Bloc, was consolidated around the economic power of the United States over global capitalism, a series of military alliances across the world, and the gradual decolonization of the European empires. The Eastern Bloc was dominated by the Soviet Union, bolstered by the revolution in China, and the establishment of a communist regime in North Korea. Continuing the tradition of communist internationalism, the Soviet Union supported, both militarily and diplomatically, the struggles of national liberation in Asia and Africa. This was countered both militarily and diplomatically by the Western Alliance. But within this polarized world, a new space of internationalism was created by the so-called non-aligned movement. The high point here was the Bandung Conference of Afro-Asian Nations in 1955, attended by such leading lights, of the post-colonial world as chun Lai, Jawaharlal Nehru Ho Chi Minh Gamal Abdel Nasser Kwame Nkrumah and Ahmed Sukarno as newly independent nations the fantasies of worlds sorry as newly independent nations the participants held national sovereignty to be of supreme importance in ensuring their rights in the global community of nations and launching programs of independent economic development. The Bandung Conference affirmed the five principles of promotion of world peace, namely mutual respect of all nations for sovereignty and territorial integrity, non-aggression, non-interference in internal affairs, equality and mutual benefit, and peaceful coexistence. Amplifying on these principles, the conference affirmed the right of each nation to defend itself singly or collectively, but warned that arrangements for collective defense must not be used to serve the particular interests of the big powers. On the political side, the main discussion at the conference was on the subject of human rights. It is particularly interesting to reread these discussions today, because they show how radically the context as well as the framework of debate on this subject has changed. In 1955 at Bandung, no one had any doubt about the principal problem of human rights in the world. It was the continued existence of colonialism and racial discrimination. There was little doubt either about the chief instrument by which human rights were to be established, It was the principle of self-determination of peoples and nations. That was the principle the United Nations had enshrined. The leaders assembled at Bandung asserted that the UN Charter and declarations had created a common standard of achievement for all peoples and nations. Accordingly, the conference supported the rights of the Arab people of Palestine. It called for the end to racial segregation and discrimination in Africa, It supported the rights of the peoples of Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia to self-determination. It called for the admission to the United Nations of Japan, Ceylon, Nepal, Jordan, Libya, Laos, Cambodia, and a united Vietnam. None of these countries were members of the UN at this time. In the two decades following the end of World War II, the nation-state was fully established as the normal form of the state everywhere in the world. The normative idea was unequivocally endorsed in the principle of self-determination of peoples and nations. The fact that the norm had not been fully realized was pointed out as a shortcoming, something that had to be overcome. It presented to the peoples of Asian and African countries an object of struggle, a goal that, was, that had complete moral legitimacy. It also provided a criterion for identifying the enemy. The enemy was colonialism, the practices of racial superiority, and the lingering fantasies of world domination by the old imperial powers. Institutionally, the General Assembly of the United Nations provided the principal forum for this new internationalism. Since the veto power enjoyed by the five permanent members of the Security Council ensured the subordination of that organ to the compulsions of the Cold War, it was the General Assembly, rapidly expanding with the inclusion of newly independent nations and enshrining the principles of equal sovereignty of all member states, which became the site of the internationalist aspirations of the formerly colonized world. Comparing this history with the international situation today, it is easy to see how things have changed. But before I come to that final topic of my lecture, I must bring up the third element of the triad on which I have so far said nothing, that is cosmopolitanism. The claims and limits of cosmopolitics. The new discourse on cosmopolitanism is conditioned by three historical developments in the 1980s. First, many post-colonial regimes in Asia and Africa became thoroughly autocratic, authoritarian, corrupt, and violent, leading to serious failures in looking after and protecting their citizens. Second, there was a rapid expansion of global trade and finance, leading to the loosening of earlier economic regimes of national autarky. Third, the Soviet Union and the socialist regimes of Eastern Europe collapsed. While there was apparently no challenge anymore to the hegemonic power of the United States as the only superpower, there was a new liberal ideological impulse to intervene against what was seen as the excesses of illiberal and authoritarian regimes around the world. A new discourse of human rights emerged in the West in the 1980s as the justification for intervention in the sovereign domain of non-Western governments by a global civic community acting on behalf of humanity itself. The new discussion on cosmopolitanism is located within this discursive space. Theoretically, it affiliates itself to two essays by Immanuel Kant, one written five years before the French Revolution and the other six years after. In the first, he claimed that the last problem to be solved by man would be the achievement of a universal civil society. This would require the establishment of lawful external relations among states. Though difficult, the civic union of the human race is the end of nature. That is, it is the goal towards which the universal history of mankind was naturally evolving. In the second Kant's celebrated essay on perpetual peace, he argued that a permanent and universal condition of peace among nations could be created if certain preconditions were met. One, the civil constitution of every state must be republican. That is, there must be free and equal citizenship, separation of legislature and executive, and representative government. Kant added as a clarification that a republican government need not be democratic. Indeed, a pure democracy was always despotic, not republican. Two, There must be a federation of free states, that is to say, a league of nations, not a universal republic of all nations. Three, cosmopolitan citizenship would only mean a right to universal hospitality, that is to say, a foreigner must have the right not to be treated as an enemy. Several things need to be pointed out before we can judge the relevance of Kant's essays for our current discussion on cosmopolitanism. First, not surprising for his time, Kant's understanding of the family of nations was wholly Eurocentric. But his distinctive contribution was the argument that the unfolding of actual historical events revealed the natural progression of European forms of republican government and law of nations to ultimately encompass all of humanity. Kant admitted that European conquests by war of overseas territories were unjust, but the federation of nations must accept the historical result of those imperial conquests as naturally given and not attempt to resist or undo them. Second, Kant's vision of a League of Republican Nations came before the age of popular nationalism in 19th century Europe, or anti-colonial nationalism in the 20th. While it was anti-despotic and anti-absolutist in spirit, it did not envisage the universalization of the nation-state form through the universal acceptance of the norm of popular sovereignty. Third, Kant's scheme for a federation of republican nations cannot accommodate an internationalism that is based on a critique of the historically produced distinction between oppressor and oppressed nations, nor can it admit the undoing of European forms of government and law imposed on other countries. The difficulty in holding up Kant's articles for perpetual Peace as the universal ground for a global federation of all nations is shown by the example of an Indian critique of nationalism that also appealed to universal humanity writing mostly in the early 20th century rabindranath tagore poet novelist dramatist essayist composer and painter was a towering figure in modern india's intellectual and cultural life his was perhaps the single most influential contribution to the modern literary modern national literary and artistic culture of bengal The national anthems of India and Bangladesh, two of the most populous countries of the world, are both adapted from songs written and composed by Tagore. However, despite his own massive contribution to the construction of the modern national culture of his country, Tagore was a consistent critic of nationalism. In particular, he refused to accept that the modern nation-state form developed in Europe should be universalized. Arguing that it was a product of the particular history of European countries, he insisted that the nation-state was utterly foreign and inimical to the cultural traditions of the East, where the laws of the state had limited jurisdiction and were subordinated to the rules of right conduct prescribed by community practices. Not only that, by comparing the historical record of the two civilizations, he concluded, that Eastern practices were far, far better suited for different peoples to live together harmoniously than the European practices of state-made law and diplomacy. Yet, Tagore was no traditionalist, for he argued passionately for removing the retrograde practices of one's own culture and opening oneself to the rest of the world to imbibe what was best in the practices of others. His ideal was, to quote him, neither the colorless vagueness of cosmopolitanism nor the fierce self-idolatry of nation worship, but social unity through recognition of the mutual differences of communities. Not surprisingly, he was pained by the aggressive nationalism of Japan and the increasingly regimented organizational reforms of the national movement in India. Unable to find a suitable political form for his non-national ideal, He appealed to an aesthetic internationalism, the right to a world citizenship of cultural exchange unrestricted by national boundaries. I can now bring my discussion to a close by drawing what I think are the lessons of modern Indian history for a judgment on the triad consisting of nationalism, internationalism, and cosmopolitanism. Let me reiterate that I wish to draw these lessons from out of the historically entangled relations between those three concepts, and not from some abstract or transcendental principle. Hence, my observations are as follows. First, neither internationalism nor cosmopolitanism can today simply push aside the historical legacy of popular nationalism and the international struggle to fight against the division of the world between oppressor and oppressed nations. Even though the old forms of imperialism and colonialism may no longer exist, there are new forms of imperial power that remain the object of theoretical critique and political resistance today. Second, there is one form of international politics and also cosmopolitan imagining that is simply a renewal of the old liberal imperialism of intervening against bad governments and illiberal cultures in other parts of the world. Modern Indian history is strongly marked by the critique of liberal imperialism. Third, perhaps in recognition of the pitfalls of liberal imperialism, there has been an attempt to focus the cosmopolitan imagination on the ethical, cultural, and aesthetic domains. The philosophical ruminations of Emmanuel Levinas' and Jacques Derrida on the question of hospitality or of Anthony Appiah on living in a world of strangers are significant examples. There is even a certain anti-political impulse here reflecting a disillusionment with the capacity of strategy and diplomacy to bring about through laws and treaties a condition of peace in a world of political antagonism and violence. Kant's faith in political prudence as an adequate mechanism to produce an institutional condition of lasting peace does not seem to be shared by many leading philosophers today. I see this as akin to Tagore's turning his back on the world of political strategy to claim for himself a citizenship of the world of unrestricted aesthetic borrowing and enjoyment. Fourth, specific proposals for a cosmopolitical world world order, such as those proposed by David Held, Ulrich Beck, or Antonio Negri, all go against, indeed negate, what I think is the principal achievement of anti-imperialism in the 20th century, namely the establishment of a universal civic constitution based on the formal equality of sovereign nation-states. Institutionally, this is enshrined principally in the General Assembly of the United Nations, Collective action or inaction based on the veto power in the Security Council or the military power of a so-called coalition of the willing is fundamentally antithetical to the historical legacy of internationalism. Finally, I should point out that I have drawn these lessons not from a study of intellectual or cultural history, but the actual history of political movements. I cannot endorse Kant's secret article, for perpetual peace, by which those who run states must give philosophers a hearing, even though they need not publicly acknowledge that fact. Whatever merit this dictum might have had in the age of enlightened monarchs, in today's age of mass democracy, where millions are claiming a voice in deciding how they are to be governed, and the vote of a philosopher is exactly the same as that of a peasant, It can only be regarded as misplaced conceit. Hence, I have a far more modest view of the role of the intellectual in imagining our collective future, which is why I can only think of cosmopolitanism as a concept that is extremely limited in its historical potential. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Partho. We have about 20 minutes for questions and answers. We already had a debate prior to the lecture about the relevant criteria today for identifying friends and enemies. So I will not uh, repeat that, uh, my questions here. But uh, as the audience, you have the floor now. Yes.
2: Yes, Thank you very much. Um, Of all the political figures in the the Hempstead, Independent Gandhi, Neo, and Uh, What do you you think of the role of the third? Oh, sorry. Thank you very much for a brilliant lecture. In the Indian independence movement, Gandhi and Patel. What do you think of the role of the third Aga Khan? Who I was very interested in his career. Uh, Gandhi. I was once in prison in his palace in Pune, and he organised the Khilafat movement after the First World War. And he had a very distinguished career, Secretary of the League of Nations. Have you any views of the career of the third Aga Khan?
0: I'll we'll take a few more. Yes, I'll take uh, one or two more questions. Yes.
2: Thanks. Thanks very much for your talk. Um, I was just wondering if, uh, throughout
0: in any of the time periods that you discussed, whether you saw any evidence in the research to suggest that there were conversations, organizations, or agitations looking for organizing freedom and or sovereignty in some way specifically
2: besides the nation state.
0: Thank you. Perhaps one more question? No, We'll begin with those two, Partho, if you don't mind.
1: Uh, on the third Aga Khan, I, I don't have too much to offer. In, uh, you know What I know about him was that he was... He was regarded as somebody very close to the British. Um, this this use of his palace in Pune by, by Gandhi it was the palace was actually commandeered by the British government to act as a prison. Effectively, he was so the, the Aga Khan simply offered his palace to the British authorities to to be used for Gandhi so for the incarceration of Gandhi and 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 several of his his Close associates, uh, but generally speaking, the uh, Khan was regarded as extremely close to the to the British um, on the non national possible non national forms of uh, anti colonialism now, there are uh, several inchoate uh, not very well formed uh, tendencies, one was what I have described as the more liberal form of imagining a certain citizenship of empire. Uh, This was true of many liberal, um, liberal nationalists of the early 20th century. Um, even into the 1920s, many of these people were active. They were, they were not in favor of the more militant kinds of nationalism, and certainly uh, they were opposed to Gandhi's form of mass nationalism. These were liberals who didn't actually think that most Indians were ready to be proper citizens. Uh, they were, they were broadly speaking, against universal franchise at this point of time. They wanted education qualifications, property qualifications, etc., to be attached to citizenship. And they were, yes, there was a certain internationalist imagination. This was more developed in the case of the of the French colonies than in the case of India. Um, So even people like Leopold Senghor and so on in in Senegal uh, or some people in the French Caribbeans, they were far more articulate in terms of thinking of a situation where they would be regarded as, as it were, imperial citizens with a certain kind of voice of representation within the imperial order itself. Now, the, the crucial question was, of course, was it ever possible to think of all colonial citizens to be equal citizens of, a, of an empire? Because, because if that was the case, the metropolitan citizens would be outnumbered by, 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 the, by the citizens of the colonies. And clearly, this was, this was never within the horizon of any kind of feasible idea of equal citizenship. So it wasn't equal citizenship. What, w- in the French case, this was far more advanced than in the case of Britain, where actually certain sections of what were regarded as assimilated uh, Fre- uh, colonials who become French through education and so on, were accorded a certain equal status of French citizens. For instance, people like Senghor and so on uh, were actually members of the French parliament, even as people from the colonies. Uh, This was never really very uh, well advanced in in the case of of Britain. Uh, So, for instance, the members of parliament who were Indians uh, had to be elected from a British constituency here. Uh, So, um, but as I said these kinds of tendencies were all overwhelmed, as it were, by the growing strength of a mass popular nationalism. Uh, And as I said, with the form of the nation state being regarded as the normal form of the modern state, certainly from the period of the League of Nations, you know, this period, the interwar period, uh, it seems to me that the formal sort of constitutional imagination of a form of sovereignty that was not national uh, was was simply, I mean, there were were just too few resources available to imagine this in the face of what was already a very well-developed constitutional idea of what a modern nation-state would look like. Uh, So it seems to me that... I wouldn't say that there were no tendencies of this kind at all. There were. Uh, but they did not have the uh, form of imagining a constitutional order of citizenship and law and sovereignty, right, which could match up with what was already a very well-articulated form of, of, of the nation-state.
0: Any other questions?
1: People here on this side.
2: Yes. If sorry, thank you. hi. If I uh, understood you correctly, then you are kind of suggesting that inter- internationalism is a ultimately, if it's the right kind of nations, a better solution than cosmopolitanism. But we know that many nations of all are a creation of. Empires and the borders and the composition of these nations, and a lot of what is happening now is ethnosization yeah. of nations. Even in India, the, the, sure. if Modi is going to become the the, the prime minister, then uh, what is co- considered the Indian nation and uh, is going to be transformed quite radically. So, you you did not mention the whole. Eth- um, ethnic divisions or, and other form of collectivities and political projects of belonging and I wonder how do you relate this to internationalism
0: would you like to respond immediately
2: we can take some more if you if
0: um,
2: Thanks. Just um, carrying on from one of your earlier answers, you suggested that an alternative, perhaps, to, to the nation-state would be citizens of an empire. And I wondered if you thought something like the European Union was a modern incarnation of some kind of imperial citizenship or, or one version of it.
0: Okay, I'll take one more. Uh, you in the purple shirt, please.
1: Hi. Uh, you suggested that uh, the collection of certain kinds of data by the League of Nations uh, and compilation of data um, contributed to, say, the intellectual background of the nation-state in presumably you meant the interwar years. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Thank you. Would you like to respond? Yeah. Okay, uh, this is a very important question. First of all, I didn't s- suggest that internationalism was in some ways better than cosmopolitanism. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was simply giving an account of what, what the uh, horizons are, right, and the limits were. Now, you're completely right that the sort of understanding of internationalism that grew in the period of, let's say, between the two world wars, and I mentioned in particular a kind of liberal understanding of this, which was enshrined more in the League of Nations idea of a kind of gradual, supervised path to nation-state form, uh, and the Comintern idea uh, of sort of revolutionary overthrow of imperialism, right? Uh, that both, in a sense, accepted a kind of modular form of the nation-state as the goal towards which uh, the political forms of the colonial countries must proceed. Now, you're completely right that one of the things that's happened, and this was not even clear in the period of what I described as the Bandung kind of period in the 50s. Soon after uh, many of these countries became independent, the the consequences of a kind of mass popular nationalism in these places what would be the consequences of this both socially and in a sense in terms of the political imagination right this was not foreseen in the 1950s uh, so in fact it's true in bandung you if you read those kinds of speech there was enormous optimism about about the future of the post colonial nations and at least those people had no doubts at all that once colonial forms were abolished from all of the world and racial discrimination was abolished, even in the formal sense, it would inaugurate a completely new path to a new kind of world. Now, what we've seen since then is either completely authoritarian and largely violent tyrannical sorts of regimes in many post-colonial countries And even in those places where you do have a certain mass democracy, right, uh, the partly you can describe it as a kind of ethnicization of a majority uh, nationalism, leading of course to a whole series of breakaway nationalisms, right, which which want to separate from the, but again with the intention of creating their own nation state form, right. It is, of course, a consequence of a certain deepening of the idea of popular sovereignty itself, which underlies the idea of the nation state, right? Now, whether this is possible, whether it's possible to work in ways to either mitigate or modify the consequences of mass Nationalism, And I think you're completely right in suggesting that it's precisely in the drawing off of borders, the demarcation between minority ethnicities and majority ethnicities. That's really where the problem has emerged. And in some of these cases, I think there are certain kinds of forms that have emerged. Of course, one classic form was always a certain federalism and, and different kinds of arrangements of federalism. So you could have definitions of certain degrees of autonomy even within a nation-state form. So that, that still al- already exists. But there are different ways in which these things can be, and are being negotiated in different local situations. So it is possible to think of, of, of let's say, overlapping jurisdictions of different authorities within the same territorial area some of this may already been, in fact, emerged, even though it doesn't have a very clear sort of juridical form yet, right? But in effect, many of these border areas, you actually do have this. Uh, So those might be the ways to proceed, which is really at a level below the level of the sovereign state itself, that there could be different sorts of jurisdictions defined where a certain overlapping of sovereignties, where a... Sometimes you could think even of ideas of citizenship that are graded in different ways. Uh, and it, once again, there are many examples one can give from different places, where in fact, although in the formal sense, you have an, ag- an argument of equal citizenship, in actual fact, there are a whole series of exceptional rights, exceptional privileges, and so on that are, uh, that are admitted for different groups, sometimes even ethnic groups, right? So it is not as though the idea of, uh, you know, national sovereignty or the, or the, uh, is, is entirely homogeneous uh, and uniform everywhere. There are various attempts to negotiate this at levels below the level of the nation-state. But the other one is the European Union example, which is at the level of a kind of federation of nation-states themselves. Now, the European Union, you can think of it as a kind of super-state, but the nation-state identity is not erased thereby. So it's it's nation-states who, as it were, enter into a kind of treaty to create a certain uh, superstructure which in certain areas will exercise a, a, a power over the nation-state or limit the powers of the, of the nation-state. Now, many, many people have suggested that this is the way to go for the rest of the world, the European Union form. The European Union has been around what now for in certain sense only for 30 or 40 years. You know, you can think of the history as, as, as uh, longer than that. Uh, and one is already in the last few years realizing what the limits of, 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 of that union is, even in terms of holding itself together. Right And, uh, yes, I mean, there have been attempts in other parts of the world, too, to think of these kinds of unions. Certainly in the economic sense, there are different sorts of unions. You know, in Latin America, for instance, in other parts, there's the Asian, uh, what is it called, Uh, ASEAN. ASEAN. Uh, So, you know, there are certain kinds of unions. These are all, by the way, results of agreements or treaties between national governments, right, uh, which agreed to certain common uh, regulating uh, authorities between to regulate their own mutual relations, now, to what extent this actually might proceed further to create state forms of sovereignty which are not national, It still remains to be seen. It seems to me that the idea of the European Union as a kind of universal model for the rest of the world is far less credible today than it might have been 10 years ago. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about the, the, the possibilities of that. Now, going back to the League, League of Nations question, it's, it's very important. You know, it, it was not simply just the production of data. It is the idea that there is a common conceptual scheme of government that applies everywhere in the world. Now, intellectually, I trace it back to Jeremy Bentham and and a kind of understanding of the idea of comparative government, which is universal. One of the things that Bentham argued, it seems to me for the first time, that governments everywhere can be compared according to a single measure some common conceptual scheme. So irrespective of where this, you know, irrespective of social development, irrespective of culture, all governments can be compared within a single universal conceptual scheme. And of course you could have gradations and so on and so forth. There were all sorts of gradations that were. But the crucial argument that Bentham proposes within his utilitarian scheme was to say that there was first of all, an idea of a norm as in normal, normalizing. All governments are normalized, therefore. There is a single norm by which all governments everywhere can be compared. And this norm had two dimensions to it. One was a purely empirical sense of the norm, right? So that you can have criteria which apply everywhere to all governments. And there could be also, Bentham himself proposes a series of things. Uh, you know, which have to do with um, laws, different kinds of laws—civic, uh, you know, civil laws, criminal laws. You, you know, basically to measure what we will call the quality or the functions of government. Right? How do they? What? How do they perform, as it were, empirically? No matter where, which where, which part of the world they might be in. So that's that's purely empirical, which sets a kind of norm uh, in, as in normal, average, mean, which is an empirical sense. And you can trace the average and then you can trace deviations from that norm. So some are better than average, some are less than average. We are doing this all the time. You know, all the kind of indicators of social development, human development reports... All of, We are doing this all the time, from that time onwards, which is the purely empirical one. What I'm suggesting is that the League of Nations actually inaugurates a series of international organizations which begin to do this. So the ILO, for instance, which is from that time, the health organization, which later becomes the WHO, after, after, after the UN, they, are, they were doing this, they were producing this, and there were sort of manuals that were produced in the League period, particularly for the mandates. Because the mandates, as I I mentioned, the mandates, many of them were dealing with so-called primitive societies. You know, the various Pacific islands, uh, various uh, so-called tribal societies of, of Africa. How were these places to be governed now? And the ILO produces manuals basically to check... The performance of government in terms of certain measurable criteria, for instance, on grounds of health, on grounds of income, on grounds of various what we would today call measures of livelihood, of, of uh, you know those kinds of welfare kinds of criteria that, I think is crucial in terms of precisely producing a kind of intellectual uh, and you're completely right in suggesting this a kind of intellectual grid within which governments everywhere become comparable. And now it's, it's become part of our common sense to think of this. as So you, you compare uh, nations according to incomes, according to mortality rates, according to you know, child uh, mortality, according to literacy, all of these are precisely indicators by which all governments can be measured according to some common criteria. Um, yeah, so that's what I thought about the League of Nations. And this has been far more elaborate now under the regime of the UN uh, organizations. Yes.
0: Okay, it's almost 8 o'clock, so uh, I'll end it here. But as I said, there'll be a reception outside, so you're welcome to attend and continue the discussion outside. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank
2: you.